everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. This is your host, Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm a psychologist, and I'm an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University. Uh, just like the last few episodes, I'm going to start this episode with an apology. I'm sorry that it's been almost a month, maybe even over a month, since I published my last episode. It has been a busy month, in my defense. Um, I went to the beach for a couple of days, and I've been really busy with clinical work. And I'm hoping in a, uh, like a future episode uh, to um, do some stories based on my clinical work. Um, I won't be able to share you know, patient information or anything like that. But I do have some amusing stories involving bodily fluids, involving critters. Um, I think I could come up with a series of episodes just on things that I've encountered in the field that you might not necessarily, if you're not a psychologist, or even if you are a psychologist, uh, realize that sometimes we encounter some pretty interesting stuff. But that's not the topic of today's episode. The topic of today's episode is ED. Um, we could base this on erectile dysfunction. There's actually psychological treatments, CBD treatments for erectile dysfunction, but that's not the ED that we're talking about today. The ED that we're talking about today is executive dysfunction. Um, we also have ED standing for other things in the realm of psychology. Uh, I know in Tennessee, sometimes ED stands for emotional disturbance which is a term in the school system. Sometimes they'll use for somebody that presents with an anxiety disorder, depression, something sort of besides ADHD or autism that needs special education services. Don't really like the term emotional disturbance. Being emotionally disturbed sounds pejorative and sounds pretty awful, um, but that's not what we're focusing on today. It's executive dysfunction. And this comes from a mailbag request. So this mailbag request uh, said, I recently discovered your podcast and I've really enjoyed it. Recently was probably a few months ago at this point, um, given that I'm just publishing this episode. Um, I have a friend who's been struggling recently with executive dysfunction and I noticed you didn't have an episode on it. I would be very interested to learn more about it. And I think I mentioned this at the tail end of last episode, but my wife and I have had some conversations about executive functioning recently. And happy early birthday to my wife. I'm recording this episode on July 12th. And my wife's birthday is on July 13th. Uh, and it seems like a lot of times after the kids go to bed and we're sitting on the couch and we're talking about work and stuff, we oftentimes compare or sort of uh, complain about our own lack of executive functioning. And it seems like we get in this competition about who has the, the worst executive functioning. So I feel like both as a professional and as somebody that experiences a little bit of executive dysfunction themselves, um, I can put together a pretty good episode on this topic. So executive dysfunction is going to be important to psychology because it is highly related to ADHD, to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. With that being said, there's a lot of debate on what executive functioning is. Um, it's a hazy concept. There's no unitary definition. Uh, and so you'll get a lot of debate on what executive functioning is. And in order to talk about executive dysfunctioning, I'm going to have to talk about executive functioning. So let's uh, sort of break this episode down into a few pieces. First, we'll talk about the definition of executive functioning. Then we'll talk about ways that we can assess executive functioning. And then we'll talk about sort of the neuroanatomy of executive functioning. So that first part, talking about the definition of executive functioning. Um, let's break this down into top-down versus bottom-up processing. So you might have heard this if you've taken an intro to psych course or a cognitive psych course before about top-down versus bottom-up processing. 
So bottom-up processing, right? We're bombarded with raw input. Um, we are constantly getting lots of sensory information. As you're listening to this episode, right, you might be driving the car. Um, you have the feeling of the steering wheel on your hands, the feeling of the gas pedal or brake pedal against your foot. You're looking out and you're seeing things through the windshield and through your side mirrors. You're taking into account the light shining from either street lights or uh, the sun above. And then you're also listening to my obnoxious voice on this podcast. There's just so much sensory information. You might have a mosquito bite that's itching or something. We're just constantly bombarded by lots of sensory information. And we respond to this instinctually, like instantaneously. You can maybe hear me snapping my fingers in the background. I almost said unconsciously. Uh, but I prefer instinctually. Unconsciously is just a psychological term that I, I really hate because it's loaded with so much psychoanalytic baggage. Anyways, um, when we're bottom-up processing, all of this information is sort of coming into our brain at a very rudimentary level, sort of from the bottom up of our brain. There's no real organization to it. Um, our response is really disorganized, and then it's up to sort of our higher order brain to make sense of this bottom-up stuff. So uh, it's almost like a filter. Um, animals probably respond with bottom-up processing. If you think about a dog whose sense of smell is so much better than humans, right? They're being bombarded with all of these different scents, all of these different sounds. You know, they do the cute dog perk up their ear sort of thing. Um, and it's just a really... Um, knee-jerk reaction to things in the environment. So bottom-up processing, really disorganized, happens very quickly versus top-down processing. So with top-down processing, imagine that we have this control center on our brain. And we'll talk about this a lot in this episode. But it's an executive functioning center that intentionally seeks out raw information. So this is a deliberate, it's a conscious process. We're seeking out raw information and we're trying to make sense of it. This executive functioning center, it catalogs this raw information. It labels it. It organizes it. So this raw information is no longer disorganized. Top-down processing is planned out and deliberate. And for fans of psychology or for fans of pop psychology, you might have read Daniel Kahneman's best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which came out, I think, when I was an undergrad. I remember reading it as an undergrad. It's one of the reasons I fell in love with psychology. Uh, but in this book, Daniel Kahneman says that we have two systems through which we process information. We have system one, which is fast, automatic, and intuitive. It's almost like we're on autopilot. So if I asked you, what's two plus two, you wouldn't have to think about it. You'd just say four, right? It's fast, automatic, intuitive. If I said bread and blank, you might say butter. Um, you don't really have to think about it. You could sort of do it while you're distracted, you could probably do it while you're drunk or hungover versus system two, which is slower, more analytic, more deliberate. We have to use more mental energy with system two um, tasks. Reason dominates with system two taxes. Uh, I said taxes. Doing taxes would be an example of a system two task. I meant to say task. Maybe that was a parallaxis, a, a Freudian slip. Um, uh, but system two, you would definitely, you wouldn't want to do your taxes while you were drunk or hungover or didn't have the mental energy to do it. Um, so when we're talking about executive functioning, we're talking mostly about top-down processing. And this sort of, uh, again, you have this executive functioning center, hypothetically, that exists in your brain. And this corresponds to a control panel theory of executive functioning. So I think a little bit about the cartoon movie Inside Out 
where you have this mythical center in your brain with like computer displays and TV screens and whatnot with these people or inside out characters tapping on a keyboard, um, some sort of executive or executive team um, that's trying to manage everything that's going on in your brain. They're trying to direct everything. So with system two, imagine you're not at your cognitive peak, right? You're, you're hungover or you're sleep de deprived. Um, we can still do autopilot things, right? If you're sleep deprived, if you're hungover, you can probably still chew gum and walk. You're really good at doing bottom-up system one things. So system one is sort of analogous to bottom-up processing. But you're really going to struggle, 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 struggle. I'm really struggling right now, and I'm not that sleep deprived. I actually have a, a cup of coffee here on my desk. I mean, you really struggle with those effortful system two things, those uh, top-down tasks. That control panel can get fried. Sometimes I imagine when I'm really sleep deprived or whatever, and I'm not functioning, you know, my, uh, I might be functioning at 20%. Um, I imagine smoke coming out of the computer screens in my central executive, right? The, the, it's fried, and those little cartoon characters are frantically punching away at their smoking keyboards just trying to get everything under control. Um, that's one way to think about executive functioning, top-down processing, bottom-up processing. And if you read literature on executive functioning, you're going to see that distinction between top-down and bottom-up processing. Um, one way that I like to think about executive functioning is not as the term executive functioning, but as executive functions. Um, you'll see this abbreviated EFs in the literature. Um, and I'm a huge weather nerd. When I see EF in my weather hat, I'm thinking enhanced Fujita, Fujita scale, um, the, the way that they rank tornadoes, right? EF1, EF2, you can have an EF0 all the way up to EF5. But EF in this context is executive functions. And so we have multiple executive functions and how many we have is up for debate. Um, again, executive functioning is sort of a hazy, not unitary concept that people debate about what goes into it, what doesn't go into it, what it looks like, that sort of thing. Um, but most people that buy into executive functioning as sort of a concept will agree that executive functioning has at least three core EFs, three core executive functions. The three core executive functions are inhibitory control, working memory, and cognitive flexibility. We're going to break those down a little bit more, starting with inhibitory control. So again, we're bombarded with information constantly. We would become overwhelmed. Our central executive would get absolutely fried if we tried to uh, attuned to every single stimulus in our environment. It's, it, it's impossible. <laughs> That's sensory overload. We have a term for that, sensory overload. So we need to be able to focus on the relevant while tuning out the irrelevant. In cognitive psychology, they have a term called the cocktail party effect. The cocktail party effect is how if you're at a cocktail party and you're trying to engage in conversation with just maybe one or two other people, um, cocktail parties are very loud, right? You might have uh, the cleaning of glasses and, you know, 20 different conversations that are going on, background music, all of this different stuff that uh, noise that's at a cocktail party. But you're able to sort of listen to your conversation partner and tune in to that singular conversation while screening out all of that other irrelevant, extraneous background noise. You can sort of create this halo with just you and your conversing partner. And if you couldn't do this, you'd be so freaking overwhelmed by all the noise in a cocktail party. Um, speaking of being overwhelmed by noise, 
Uh, you know, I'm a school psychologist by training and I have two young kids. And recently I walked into a school cafeteria and I was just, I couldn't believe how much noise is in a school cafeteria. I'm not somebody that's like super sensorily sensitive, but that amount of auditory stimulation of just, I don't know, hundreds of kids talking, um, I, I forgot how loud it is being in a school cafeteria. And if you walked in and couldn't just sort of screen that out, you would be freaking sensorily overloaded. Um, I actually think school cafeteria might be where my anxiety disorder began. Um, I don't know if anybody else's school cafeterias had this rule where like if you got too loud, you would your, your teachers might get angry at you and you'd have to have like silent lunch and everybody in the cafeteria would have to be quiet for the rest of the lunch period or for a lunch period or whatever. Um, we had this uh, noise um, stoplight that was on the wall in our cafeteria. And the stoplight was like green light, yellow light, red light. And um, I say it was a noise stoplight. You're probably like, what's a noise stoplight? Um, but it read how many decibels were in the school cafeteria. And if it got sort of medium loud and people needed to quiet down, it would get up to yellow. And if everybody was talking too loud in the entire cafeteria, it would get up to red. It would emit this like siren noise that still gives me anxiety to think about today. Um, and that meant that we would have silent lunch if it went to red. So if it went to yellow, everybody would try to quiet down. Um, green meant you were okay. And then red meant you needed to have silent lunch. And just thinking about that um, noise sensing spotlight. I, I wonder if that exists in other places. I've never even heard about that existing in other places. I'm partially thinking that I've dreamed this up right now, but pretty sure that's where one of my anxiety disorders began. All right. Um, also in this inhibitory control domain, executive of executive functioning, we're talking about executive functioning, not my anxiety disorder here. Um, we have the concept of attentional spotlights, right? Where we can sort of focus our attention. Think about a flashlight beam. We can focus our attention in one area and then sort of keep in the black, sort of, uh, screen out everything else. And this can be really difficult with something like ADHD, where you're highly distractible and your mind wanders a lot. Most of us, our mind wanders a lot. Uh, on average, for an average person, for a person without ADHD, our mind wanders about 50% of our waking hours. So that's a lot of time with our mind, you know, wandering and rambling around. And for some people, I imagine it's significantly more than 50% of our waking hours. Uh, in order to learn, right, and you're in a classroom, you have to control your mind wandering. Um, we have to have selective attention and selective attention is sort of another way to say attentional spotlight. We have to focus on relevant stimuli while ignoring the extraneous stimuli, right? We have to filter through the noise and our attentional capacity is limited. Um, we're not very good at multitasking, although what multitasking is, is sort of loaded, right? Again, we are pretty good at being able to chew gum and walk, but we're not so good at maybe being able to text message and drive. So I'm not one of those people that says human beings are incapable of multitasking because it gets very philosophical on what exactly multitasking is. We can occasionally exhibit what we call divided attention. Divided attention is paying attention to two or more streams of information at the same time. Some people are better at this than others, um, but again, there's a lot of different factors that go into how good you are at divided attention. Um, all right, keeping on with inhibitory control, um, we also have sort of the concept of self-control fitting in here, the ability to resist temptation, to not give in to impulse. 
And we know one of the characteristics of ADHD is impulsivity. Um, and I also think that Walter Michelle's marshmallow test might fit in here, right? Are you able to delay gratification? Um, that can fit into inhibitory control. So inhibitory control, even though it's just one executive function, in itself is a pretty diverse concept, right? And there's a lot of different things that go into inhibitory control, and you can already see why executive functioning is really difficult to define. Right. Inhibitory control, our first EF that we're going to talk about, our first executive function. Our second one is going to be working memory. So let's do sort of a thought experiment. Let's imagine executive functioning as a process rather than as a place. So rather than thinking about executive functioning as this inside out control board center in your brain, um, let's think about it as a process. And this process is going to start with sensory input with sight, smell, sound, touch, taste, the five senses. Uh, although last year I was corrected, I was seeing a client and um, I was asking in the, the context of autism about uh, sensory stimulation, sensory sensitivity, you know, whether there was aversion to sound. And I said, does your child experience sensory sensitivity like to the five senses? And um, the parent got upset with me and they were like, we don't have five senses, we actually have seven. And um, I had to sort of do a double take there and look up what the other two senses were because I'm, you know, I was always taught we have five. Uh, but you will see definitions of having seven senses with, in addition to sight, smell, sound, touch, and taste, having vestibular senses. So uh, balance would go into that, I guess. And proprioception. Proprioception is awareness of where your body is in space. So the sensory input, the sensory information um, it's way too much to attune to everything. We'd get sensory overload. So sensory input's going to be filtered into a sensory register. Um, most of our visual stuff that we sort of pay attention to, or that at least makes it to our sensory registry, um, is memorized for like less than a second. So visual stuff, a lot of it goes in and out of the sensory register. And most auditory stuff, we only remember for two to three seconds. Uh, but again, we would be overloaded if we attuned to everything that even makes it to our sensory register. We have to sort of scan in our sensory register and pick out what we need to know in order to survive. So imagine you're in a meadow and you're being ambushed by a mountain lion. This mountain lion, this cougar, this puma, it jumps out of this flowery bush at you. And in that moment, you can't attend to the smell of the flowers on the bush or the blueness of the sky. You've got to react to this huge cat jumping at you. And this is where attention comes in, that attentional spotlight. We have to pay attention to things in order for them to stick into our working memory. So the first thing about memory is you have to be able to pay attention to something before it even reaches your memory. So attention and memory are very much wedded together. All right, so talking about executive functioning as a process, so far we have sensory input that goes into the sensory register. And then if we pay attention to it, attention is the next step. Then it's filtered through what we call the central executive, which is where a lot of executive functioning comes in, like inhibitory control. And in this central executive, after we pay attention to it, we organize, we regulate, and we inhibit attention. And this central executive, again, is largely hypothetical, and it's really overly simplified. But here we put in some conscious effort to move whatever is relevant or whatever our central executive thinks is relevant into our working memory. So here it's going to move to working memory. 
Working memory is also known as short-term memory. And there's some debate, there's a lot of semantic debate on whether working memory and short-term memory are the same thing. I'm going to treat them as the same thing. I'm not convinced that working memory and short-term memory are separate, distinct concepts. Um, working memory lasts about 20 seconds on average, and it's both verbal and nonverbal. So you'll see a distinction between verbal working memory and nonverbal working memory. Um, for verbal working memory, we might use something like the phonological loop. The phonological loop is this voice in our head. Or we might even say it out loud, where we repeat something over and over again so we remember it. Um, right now, the bane of my existence and logging into my different accounts at the university and my clinical work is multi-step authentication. So I put in my email address, I put in my password, and then I get like the six-digit numerical code that's sent to my phone, and I have to enter that into the computer to log into my email or whatever I'm trying to get into. And when I get that six-digit code on my phone, I usually have to repeat it over and over again to myself before I put it into the keyboard. So it might be like 459-387. And I'm just telling myself 459-387, 459-387, over and over again. That's the phonological loop. Um, that also has to do with our digit span, which is a way, I'm sort of jumping ahead of myself now and talking about assessment, but that's a way that we can measure working memory is through digit span. And most people have a working memory for numbers of seven digits plus or minus two. So on the average person's gonna be able to remember strings of five to nine digits. So phylogical loop is really helpful for verbal stuff. For nonverbal stuff, we might use something like the visual spatial sketch pad. Um, I have a really good knack for knowledge of geography in foreign cities. So, you know, I can go to a foreign city that I might have only visited once or that I might have only played a video game like Assassin's Creed in a city and all of a sudden I'm there. And, like, I don't have to look at a map. I don't have to look um, at the GPS on my phone. Like, I have it down. It always impresses my travel partners or my wife when we go to a foreign city and I'm able to just navigate. Um, like, right now... I can like perfectly envision my route that I had to walk to and from school um, from my dorm uh, to this university that I studied at in France. And it was like a mile walk through the city, but I can memorize all the rights and lefts that I took. Um, in fact, I was so like, I don't know, I'm so like visual spatial in nature that I recently put that route and some other routes that I've traveled abroad um, into a virtual map. And with this virtual map, I'm able to plug it into my treadmill. And on my treadmill, it has a screen. And it'll put it into Google Street View. And I can run those routes. And like with the Google Street View, my elevation um, on the treadmill, right, my incline and decline will actually change to go along geographically with how you do it. So it's kind of like being there. It's really cool. Um, again, I'm a nerd, so I think it's really cool. Um, again, working memory we're talking about, we talked about the first executive function of inhibitory control, working memory short, 20 seconds or less. It's not the end of the process. So again, thinking about executive functioning as a process. Um, after working memory, we either encode the memory to long-term memory or it's lost. Um, long-term memory is the end game in this process. It's the ultimate goal. And once things are stored away in long-term memory, we have to sort of do the opposite of encoding. We have to do retrieval to get this information back to our attentional spotlight so we can kind of reverse the process to pull things from long-term memory in, back into attention. 
Um, I'm a believer that executive functioning is more of a process than a place. All right, let's talk about that last core EF. We've talked about inhibitory control inhibition. We've talked about working memory. Now let's touch on cognitive flexibility. With cognitive flexibility, we live in a world of rules. We use rules. We use cognitive shortcuts, heuristics, you might hear them called, to make sense of the world. And most of the time, these heuristics work. So let's say you walk to your bathroom sink and you have two knobs for water. You have a hot water knob on the right and a cold water knob on the left. And it becomes second nature, right? You can go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you know which one you turn to do hot water. You'll do the one on the right to turn on hot water and the one on the left to turn on cold water or whatever. But then let's imagine you move to a different place and the hot and the cold water knobs are reversed. Now the hot is on the uh, left and the cold is on the right or something like that. The rules have changed. So you have to adapt. You have to shift. Um, and it could be even more complicated than that. So maybe not only are the knobs shifted, but you have to turn one counterclockwise to open it and the other counter or clockwise to close it, which would have been the opposite. So now you have like two different rule changes. Right? There's a learning curve to that. And how quickly you can adapt to this learning curve is sort of a, a, a measure of your cognitive flexibility. Um, cognitive flexibility can also involve perspective taking. So sort of theory of mind. Um, can you be flexible and see things from others' perspective? Um, seeing things from other perspective, uh, both physically, like giving mirror image instructions to somebody sitting across the table from you, or, or mentally, like thinking abstractly from somebody else's perspective. Um, I'm always for, uh, impressed, sort of on this fitness track right now, I was talking about my treadmill, I'm impressed by like fitness trainers that lead classes, right? A fitness trainer leading a group class, they face the class. And sometimes they have to give instructions to people facing them, like lift your right hand higher, or kick your left leg or whatever. And they have to be able to put themselves into the perspective of like the person facing them, the person taking the, the class. And that can be really difficult. Um, it's sort of the stage right, stage left concept for theater folks. And that, that's cognitive flexibility. Um, cognitive flexibility is more esoteric. It's more abstract. It's less well known than the other two core EFs. And it probably also takes longer to develop. Uh, a four-year-old is not going to have the cognitive flexibility of a 14-year-old. So we've discussed the three core EFs. And also EF is a process and not a place. And again, I'm a firm believer that EF is more process-based than place-based. Um, I'm also a firm believer that there are different types of executive functioning, sort of akin to Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Um, and thinking back to Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, which is not empirically supported, um, you have bodily kinesthetic intelligence, where you might be like really good at athletic stuff. Or you might have musical intelligence, where you're really good at being able to play a, a piece by ear, or really good at being able to read sheet music. Um, I think executive functioning is sort of like that. So I'm always really impressed watching an artist like Bob Ross, who, who it's super therapeutic to watch Bob Ross. I don't know if there's any research out there on that, but somebody needs to do some research on it. Uh, but you watch Bob Ross and he's got this blank canvas and he'll make a brush stroke on a blank canvas. And you're like, what is he doing? And somehow already in his mind, he was thinking, you know, 20 moves ahead and he already knew what the finished product was going to be like. Um, that's probably why I'm not a good artist. I'm like, so... I, I drive the car as I build it. Um, I can't think that far ahead with artwork. Um, or you could think about executive functioning as a chess player. 
You're playing several moves ahead in your mind. That's a type of executive functioning too. Um, or, I, you know, sometimes put together IKEA furniture, right? And I'm always amazed at, or I want to meet the person that puts together people. It's probably a team of people that puts together IKEA instruction manuals. So my mind is sort of blown at how somebody can take a box full of stuff and design instructions um, with dowels and screws and what to put together, what not to put together. Um, to me, it's like that. That takes a lot of a forethought. A forethought is probably a really good synonym for um, executive functioning. All right, so I think we've beaten the definition of executive functioning to death. Now let's talk about how you could assess executive functioning. Just about every client I see, I give some sort of assessment of executive functioning for them. And assessment for executive functioning doesn't have to be super complicated. There's a lot of what I call bedside assessments you can do for executive functioning that don't involve fancy, expensive test kits. They're quick and they're dirty. Um, or they're not dirty. It's a quick and dirty assessment of executive functioning, but you don't have to roll up your sleeves and take a shower afterwards or whatever. Um, one old school bedside assessment of executive functioning is the Stroop test. So you might have been exposed to a Stroop test before in like an undergrad psych course. Um, most classic Stroop tests, and Stroop tests are over 100 years old at this point, um, involve reading a word with a color font. And the word is usually a color. So it might spell out G-R-E-E-N, which is green. You read it as green, but that those letters G-R-E-E-N are written in red font. Um, and then you'll have other sort of colors and words written out. You can Google Stroop test if you want an idea of what this actually looks like. And you have the examiner say, um, either I want you to label the color and disregard the word and do it as fi qua fa fast, quickly as you can, or I want you to um, read the word and don't worry about the color. This involves effortful inhibitory control. Um, a quick and easy measure of working memory is digit span. Um, that would be an easy way of verbal working memory because you have to say out loud the digits. So I would give you a string of digits and I would ask you to repeat them back to me. Um, and we'd see if your seven plus or minus two is your range of being able to remember a string of digits between five and nine digits. Another quick and easy measure of um, working memory for somebody that's nonverbal, that maybe doesn't have words, is block tapping. So there's different block tapping tasks where you tap in a certain way and they have to repeat after you. Um, the game Simon or Bop It um, is an example of working memory. That's, that's measuring executive function. It's kind of interesting. Or you could do just repeat a sentence. So say what I say and you repeat um, uh, progressively longer and longer sentences or you say a longer and longer sentence and see if somebody can repeat it after you. Um, for cognitive flexibility, sort of the classic old school measure of this is the Wisconsin card sort. Um, you'll see this abbreviated WCST in the EF literature for Wisconsin card sort test. Um, now, um, these cards are mostly on the computer, but the way Wisconsin card sort works is you have cards, but again, it's mostly computerized, sort of like a solitary, solitaire card game would look like. Um, so the cards are sort of laid out like solitaire uh, but there's different shapes and different colors and different numbers of shapes on these cards. So you try to make matches of cards, but you have no idea what the rules for making a match are. So essentially it's trial and error, and you're trying to feel out the rules for how to make a match. And some people are able to find the rules out very quickly and in very few steps, 
And for other people, it takes a lot of trials. Um, some other tests that we have of cognitive flexibility, trail making tests. Um, trail making tests might require you, there, there might be, it sort of looks like connect the dots, um, but there's numbers and there's letters on the test and there'll be instructions to maybe uh, do a number and then do a letter in alphabetical order so you, and then alternate off. So you might go one to A, two to B, three to C, and there's some sort of rule that you have to follow that's involved in trail making tests. And then the rules might shift in another trial of the trail making test. We see how quickly you can adapt to that change in rules. Um, all right, so those are some quick and easy bedside assessments of executive functioning. There's also more formalized assessment. Um, the granddaddy of executive functioning testing is the DCAFs. Um, the DCAF stands for the Dallas Kaplan Executive Function System. Um, the DCAFs consists of nine subtests. And it's expensive. It's about $1,000 for clinicians to purchase. But it's a formalized assessment of executive functioning. Um, another test that you can give is the BASC, the Behavioral Assessment Scale for Children, which is a broadband measure. It looks at other things, many other things besides executive functioning. Um, but it does give you an executive functioning index score. So the way the BASC works is teachers and parents will fill out, um, fill out, not fill out, but they'll fill out behavioral rating scales on a child. And if the child's old enough, they can fill one out too um, as a self-report. And again, the BAS can produce an executive functioning index score. I was just doing this a couple of hours ago for a client. Um, and it can compare the score against other children or other people your age. And the BAS breaks down executive functioning into some different domains than we talked about. The domains talked about in the BAS are problem solving, attentional control, behavioral control, and emotional control. So again, there's lots of debate on what exactly executive functioning is and what goes into it. Um, on the BASC, the problem-solving index is ask questions like, can you make plans and stick to them? Can you think abstractly? And this is getting at cognitive flexibility, essentially. Um, for the in, uh, attentional control index, um, there's questions like, do you have trouble concentrating? Do you make careless mistakes? Do you have trouble listening to or following directions? So lots of stuff that would go into the predominantly inattentive presentation of ADHD. Um, for the behavioral control index, there's lots of questions like, do you interrupt others? Do you engage in impulsive behaviors? So things we would think about going into the predominantly hyperactive slash impulsive presentation of ADHD. And then the last one is the emotional control index, which includes questions like, do you do things you regret when you're upset? Can you be consoled when you're upset? And this is really getting at emotion regulation and frustration tolerance. So we've talked about the definition of executive functioning. We've talked about ways you can assess it. Now let's get into the neuroanatomy of executive functioning. So we're back to thinking about um, executive functioning as place-based, where it's based in your brain, rather than process-based. And when we think about where executive functioning lives, where this executive functioning control panel is, um, the frontal lobes, and particularly the prefrontal cortex, the PFC, um, are going to be really important to executive functioning. And within the PFC, within the prefrontal cortex, going from top to bottom, roughly, so we're doing top-down processing, which is essentially what executive functioning is, is top-down processing. Um, so starting at the top of the PFC, we have the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is heavily involved in working memory. Working memory, again, one of those three core functions of executive functioning. Um, going a shade below the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex 
is the supramedial prefrontal cortex. And the supramedial prefrontal cortex is involved in sustained attention. And then towards the bottom and then back of here, so bottom and back, a little bit above your eyebrows, we have the ventral or ventromedial or sometimes called inferior since it's the lowest prefrontal cortex, which is involved in inhibitory control. Again, you're seeing sort of um, an analog for um, the three executive functions we talked about earlier. And neuroanatomically, this is super simplified, um, but it does appear that the three core executive functions have places in the brain with which they're associated. Um, but executive functioning is much more diffuse than just the prefrontal cortex. Memory is involved, so our hippocampus is going to be involved. Um, we talked about the visual spatial sketch pad. And so our occipital lobe, our visual areas of our brain are going to get involved. Um, with our phonological loop, we talked about that with auditory working memory, our temporal lo lobe is going to be brought in. Um, the basal ganglia is involved. The amygdala is involved. Even our cerebellum is involved. So the take-home message is that the prefrontal cortex and the frontal cortices in general are heavily involved in executive functioning. And stereotypically or traditionally, I would call these the seats of executive functioning. But the reality is that executive functioning involves dozens of brain regions. It doesn't fit into a neat sort of inside-out control panel notion of executive functioning. So as long as we create this myth of a central executive, we'll continue to have trouble defining executive functioning because we're trying to fit into like a personification that doesn't exist. We're trying to fit a, a round peg into a square hole that's never going to fit. Um, but if on a multiple choice psych test, you got a question on like where in the brain is executive functioning most closely tied, uh, your best guess is going to be your frontal cortices or your prefrontal cortex specifically. All right, so the mailbag question asked about executive dysfunction. Um, executive dysfunction is not a diagnostic condition. Although I've seen some like ill-organized pushes to make it a separate diagnosis, there's not a lot of steam there to make executive dysfunction its own standalone diagnosis. Um, my personal opinion, nine times out of 10, I'd say it's really an indication of ADHD. Um, but we also see ED in people who've had strokes. We see it in people with dementia or people who are experiencing cognitive decline. Um, we see it in people that have had traumatic brain injuries with TBIs. Um, if the frontal lobes are involved in a TBI, you can have executive dysfunction. Um, but barring an organic cause, an organic cause like a stroke, dementia, TBI, um, I'm on board with calling executive dysfunction as ADHD. All right, this has turned into a long episode. We're almost at 40 minutes. Um, so lots to say about executive dysfunction. Um, send me your thoughts on this. Uh, email ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. Um, this was a mailbag request episode. So if you want a, a mailbag episode, you have something you want me to touch on, um, send something to that email with the subject line mailbag, and I'll try to, try to make it happen. Um, we do have a couple of emails in the mailbag since the last episode. Um, I'm going to read one right now. It says, hi, Dr. Taylor. I know this isn't super psych-related, uh, but I saw in your school bio that one of your interests is reading fluency. Um, can you please tell me the major things you would look for in making a differential diagnosis between dyslexia and visual processing disorder? Ooh, this is going to get interesting and controversial. Um, thank you so much for the knowledge you've imparted so far through your podcast. Uh, Michelle, I can make that into a future episode. That could get interesting. Um, again, send me more episode requests. Um, I'm going to try to crank out a couple of episodes in the next week or two. 
um, just on like fun things I've encountered in my, uh, in my clinical work. Um, I'll tell some stories that won't be as scholarly as some of these other episodes. I won't have, you know, empirical stuff to back it up with, uh, but you might get to know me a little bit better. And uh, I've, I've told some of these stories and experiences to some colleagues and some of my students. They're like, you should write a book. Um, I don't know that I have the time to write a book, but I can do some podcast on it. Um, so until those future episodes, uh, send me some emails and take care and stay well.